0: Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh.
1: Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Charles Darwin once said, it is not the strongest of the species that survives, not the most intelligent that survives. It is the one that is the most adaptable to change. If there's an industry that really is resistant to change and any kind of new idea, and that really clings into a narrative with both claws, it's got to be the financial services industry. And so in preparation for today's guest, I'd like to just spend a little time giving you what I will call my personal State of the Union address for the financial services industry. And I guess the biggest issue is that for the last forty years, we've all been operating under a very consistent economic environment for the most part, and that is falling interest rates. Paul Volcker came in in the early '80s, raised rates, killed inflation, and bond prices have been going up. Interest rates have been going down, without a couple of hiccups in between '94, uh, the fourth quarter of 2018, come to mind off the top of my head. But for the most part, it's been a, to where we went into a zero interest rate policy during the COVID, and so along with that, those types of economics. There are certain theories and practices that become, instead of perhaps temporary and circumstantial based on a particular economic condition, become actual permanent practices, standard operating procedure. And so as rates have gone down, everybody knows government debt has continued to go up to the point where we're at almost $34 trillion now. And this isn't just U.S. This is globally. Sovereign debt has increased. And another kind of component of this has been the emergence of the Federal Reserve as a real... Economic influencer, not just here in the US, but really all over the world. And so it started with Volcker, then Charles Greenspan, in my opinion, really turned the office into kind of a bit of a celebrity status. And then you had Bernanke and now Jerome Powell. But does anybody remember the Fed chair before Paul Volcker? was somebody named G. William Miller. Yeah, I didn't know that either. So This is sort of this environment that's evolved. And of course, as firms beginning to grow and these low rates forced more and more money into risk assets, particularly the stock market, more and more firms came out. But the challenge of it is, is that they're all different names, different logos, but they all basically do the same thing. And so you find these wealth management firms competing with each other, operating with the same sort of set principles, things like 60-40 portfolios, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, 4% withdrawal rates, modern portfolio theory, the thread with all these is they're all rear looking. So they all work really well based on looking at past data. But instead of these being viewed as dispensable, if situations change, they've become indispensable and essential in the eyes of many. So why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because as these firms seek ways to differentiate themselves, it's all external. As an example, technology. Technology was a way firms could differentiate themselves, different deliverables, fancy reports, quicker trade times, whatever it might be. But actually, technology has served really level the playing field with smaller firms like ours and bigger ones. In fact, I'd argue a lot of smaller firms have advantages over bigger firms, particularly if they're independent, because we're not controlled in terms of where we get our analysis and data from. We can go anywhere all over the world, and actually we do. So technology was a way to differentiate. Then it went to credentials. Credentials. So I've had my CFP credential since 1998, and there was a time when that was something that was sort of, I guess, I won't say revered, but considered a respectable designation in the industry, set you apart. But you know, it took me well, a little over two years to get it. Now you can do it in six months or less than a year. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. That's the problem. Because along with the CFP, there are tons of other credentials out there. And I can honestly tell you, I don't remember the last time a client asked me what they meant. And I don't think most consumers in the, of investment advice know what they mean. I don't even think they care. So that was one way, but it's been diluted out. So that's meaningless. In fact, just on a side note, I will say that I think the most important qualities an advisor can have, or really anybody in this business can have, is personal integrity, some knowledge for sure, but common sense, personal experience, and probably most important, an ability to listen. To really listen to a client, to understand exactly what makes them tick, what they need. That's it. You don't need letters for that. You just need to be a human being. <laughs> With some compassion, at any rate. So there's that. Then we shift over to fees. Okay. So now what? Well, we'll see who can produce the most for and charge the least. Well, short answer to that is everybody knows in this world you get what you pay for. And then lastly, and probably the most detrimental to today's investor has been measuring performance via benchmarks. I just read an article last week. This is the first part of November. It said that the entire S and P stocks. The performance has been driven by ten companies. So, what does that mean? That means that if you're measuring your performance to the S and P, then if you had anything else besides S and P exposure, you've diluted your returns because nothing else would have driven done as well as the S and P five hundred. So, why do benchmarks matter? I mean, what difference does it make what a portfolio does versus the S and P when it's all about a person's individual goals? And so. This is the kind of where we've gotten to in this industry. And as far as the performance goes, I will tell you the performance derby is one that will be lost by a portfolio manager, by an investment advisor, and by an investment client themselves. You can't win it consistently. And if you try to, what ends up happening is it can encourage a person to take very, very dangerous risks to try to maintain that. And so my point in all this is, is that we've been operating in this 40-year kind of bubble, artificially lowered rates artificially built up market that is beginning to shift. And it's beginning to shift because interest rates are going up. Now, many of you may be aware that two rating firms, Fitch and the S&P, have both lowered the credit quality of U.S. government debt. Is that a big deal? There's a faction of people just would probably write that off as business as usual. To me, that's a big deal and it should be a big deal to anybody who's listening to this. And so the winds are changing. My point is, is that to continue to operate and advise clients from my side of the desk, the same way I was five years ago, at a minimum is dangerous and probably at the extreme is irresponsible. And so today's guest is going to be talking to us about not only the need to adapt, but why to adapt and how to adapt. His name is Mike Philbrick. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Resolve Asset Management. He has over 30 years experience in investment management and is a chartered investment manager and accredited investment fiduciary. Now, Mike is responsible for investment decisions, coaching, and strategic leadership and co-authored the book adaptive asset allocation dynamic global portfolios to profit in good times and bad now here's a copy of the book i will tell you this is one of the best investment management books and economic books i've read ever and i would encourage anybody who has an inkling towards this kind of a topic to grab a copy because it's really well done and it's extremely timely now in addition to co-authoring the book mike has written several white papers and research focused on adding new insights into the quantitative global asset allocation space Prior to launching Resolve Global with his partners, Rodrigo Gordillo and Adam Butler, and I want to interject here, I did interview one of his partners, Rodrigo Gordillo, in episode 16 of Upthinking Finance, probably about a year ago now. Prior to starting the firm, Mike held senior investment industry positions with Scotia McLeod, Richardson GMP, and the Macquarie Group in Canada. Now, preceding his investment career, Mike played professional football in the Canadian Football League and won the Great Cup Championship in 1999. He was then inducted into the Hamilton Tiger Cow Walk of Fame in 2015. So it's my pleasure today to welcome to Upthinking Finance, coming to us from Grand Cayman, Mike Philbrick. Mike, welcome to Upthinking Finance. Thanks for having me, Emerson. Great to be here. No, I appreciate it. So I got to start off with the question I asked your partner, Rodrigo, about a year ago, because it's always of interest to me. Of all the areas of investment management you could go into, why wouldn't you sit back, manage a portfolio of large cap value stocks, get your reports every day and be done with it versus going into the quantitative arena? I think that stems
2: from a personality trait that I have, which is a very high tolerance, and a very well-developed sense of irreverence.
1: Honorable traits. (laughs) There's
2: a quote in Ayn Rand's When Atlas Shrugged by Francis D'Ancona, and I'll probably butcher this a little bit, but he said, when you're faced with a contradiction, check your premises. You'll find one of them is wrong. And so I think the finance literature is wrought with this stuff. The fact that things fall into some sort of normal distribution, that risk is linear, when we know it's nonlinear, the assumptions in sort of the major well-adopted finance axioms and formulas have assumptions in them that aren't real, that aren't true. Yet the industry bases a whole lot of its existence on those types of things. And in the nooks and crannies around those items is where if you take a different approach, you're going to have a different outcome. This creates behavioral problems such as tracking error, but it also in the long run should provide a smoother and more robust outcome.
1: So, okay. Which I mentioned in the intro of the book that you co-authored, which to me just not only affirms where my brain has been going the last few years, but also gives me confidence going ahead for what we're doing with our clients. But you mentioned this, and this is a really important point about behaviors, because everybody's operating, it seems like the masses are operating with this certain level of expectations. As you said, these things are written in stone. They're these non-questionable, fundamental Principles you base designing plans on, investing money on. And you mentioned a number of them in the book. And I mean, you, you go from the forecasters, you know, and the role there to benchmarks to time horizons. I mean, I'd love to talk to you about all this stuff if you don't mind just kind of letting me know. That Tetlock report was a good one too that you brought up. Maybe that's a good place to start. Sure. And I think
2: the world has fallen into a romance with benchmarking. I said bench marketing, not benchmarking. So When you think about portfolios that are designed today and you see this massive home country bias in American portfolios that skew largely to U.S. portfolios, why is that? Well, it's recency bias. It's the thing that's treated them so well over the last 10 to 15 years. And if risk premia are guaranteed, which they are not, then the risk premia would have manifested for those countries that are non-U.S. countries, so international stocks, over the last 10 to 15 years, which they have not. As well, from 2000 to 2014, the US equity market didn't have a risk premium. Yet. It was a highly volatile, zero returning asset. So, you know, there's some falsehoods here. And unfortunately, what happens with investors and advisors, the advisors are forced into a position where if they're not benchmarking, i.e., they're not creating the portfolio under whatever the current zeitgeist is. So, right now, it's, hey, low fees. I'm going to act as a fiduciary and cut your fees. Well, You can act as a fiduciary and cut your fees, but then also if you're taking active bets on the US market versus diversifying strategies versus diversifying asset classes versus diversifying regions of the world, that's active management just under a different name. You become a salesman for Vanguard. And so that's not a fiduciary role. That's not in the best interest, but that's what advisors are forced to compete with, right? So if you look at the situation where you're going into a competitive scenario and someone else is quoting their model portfolio versus your model portfolio, and they have all US equities and bonds and they have no diversifiers over the last 10 to 15 years, their benchmarking portfolio is going to look way better than your benchmarking portfolio. And so it creates a game theoretic that is not particularly useful for the end asset consumers on a go forward basis. Now, circling to Tetlock and his study in expert political judgment, which was a real eye-opener, it was a continuation of eyes being pried open as we rolled through our careers, was understanding that, so if those don't know the Tetlock story, is Tetlock was involved in many very deep think scenarios where experts on a myriad of different topics, everything from geopolitical experts to finance experts, would sit in these think tanks and share you know, what they thought was going to happen. And while he was untenured, he noticed, first of all, these experts had no idea. Their outcomes were entirely random. That's what he noticed. He didn't have any evidence of that. He noticed that and he noticed there was this massive revisionist history coming from these experts on why things didn't work or why they didn't turn out the way they did. So once he got tenure, he embarked on a 10-year study where he tracked 284 experts over 10 years with about 28,000 observations. And those observations showed that there really wasn't any value to these experts' forecast. He also found that there was nuance. So if you were more publicly quoted, you were probably less accurate If you were sort of more of a generalist versus more of a specialist, a generalist with multidisciplinary, self-critical, cautious outlooks, turned out to have better predictions, but they weren't as narrow. So again, it was a function of trying to think through how do you make these predictions as you think about them and how often are you allowed to update your priors? What he did find also in that was simple rules trend will continue, trend will revert, were far more effective than the actual relying on the wetware between the ears of these experts. So that's what sent us on a much more rigorous journey into thinking about things systematically, thinking about them algorithmically, where you can sit down and sort of test these things. And from a first principles basis, we have to understand that markets are not linear. They are non-linear. They are not Gaussian. And this is from the work of whether you want to look at Peter L. Bernstein's Against the Gods or Mandelbrot's work. There's a non-linearity with outcomes. There's risks that are not in back tests, right? And so this is something that I repeat over and over again, is the future holds what the past has yet to reveal across many domains. So once you know that, how might you think about constructing a portfolio? How do you have to think about the things that go into building a portfolio that's not based on assumptions that turn out to be highly variant and not reliable? So if you're in Europe over the last 10 to 15 years, your equity risk premium has been zero. How does that affect the end asset user? How does that affect the decumulation of a portfolio and the funding of those needs required from a portfolio, whether they be retirement, endowment funding, whatever they may be?
1: So first of all, nonlinear for people are listening, the stock market doesn't go up 10% every year. And apparently the experts on CNBC, I can't remember the guy's name, but what is it? A hollow barrel makes the most noise is another thing I've just learned. No, but your point here is important because, and you guys, you're getting to a point, and I wanted to just share this from the book, because it was really critical when you defined what risk really is. Risk isn't, well, my, the S&P was up 15% and I only made nine, because this is all the behaviors and the thinking that comes from what you're talking about. And you, you defined it in the book. You said, one, risk is measured as the probability that you won't meet your financial goal. I mean, that's personal. And then two, investing should have the exclusive objective of minimizing this risk. I read that. It was like, man, I've been preaching this in different words for years. And to have it see it in print just made me feel really good because that's it. So let me ask you this, because the challenge becomes what you're talking about. You mentioned this. We had a conversation last week that the attention span, that's what I'm going to call it, or the commitment span of your average investor. And I've experienced this. You guys, I think, say in the book five years, but- yeah, no, seriously, I'm thinking there's. it's usually two to three years where if something doesn't happen, and so a real difficult challenge, you know, I guess on both sides of our desks is having to explain to people like in the year when they're positioned in the way, you know, and I know you'll get into this, but explain to somebody why they're up 3% when the s and is up 15 and try to bring it back to their goals. I mean, that is really work. And you hit a great point because most people in this business don't want to take the time to do it. And so, yeah, so anyway, I just... It's the classic path less traveled.
2: Right? It's hard, right? We can do what everybody wants to do, or everybody else is doing, that virtually guarantees getting the results that everybody else is getting. The insidious part of that with recency bias, which then fuels an overconfidence bias, is that you end up in a scenario like you have today where we may have reached peak 60 40 as an example. Look at what bonds did to portfolios over the last two years. Where there's a huge overconfidence. It's the old Telab's, how's a turkey to know that he can't trust the turkey farmer until it's too late? The turkey farmer birthed him. He's fed him. He's taken care of him. He's protected him from foxes. He's done everything until all of a sudden, somewhere around November 9th, the recording date of this, it's getting close to Thanksgiving. We fatten him up a little bit more, and all of a sudden, him and his buddies. Days are ended and they end up in the freezer for us to consume. How is he to know that is going to happen? And this is where thinking about the investment protocol, the investment, the act of investing from a first principles perspective, and maybe eschewing or understanding the weaknesses in CAPM and in modern portfolio theory would lead you to a different conclusion on how you would build the portfolio. And again, it would lead you away from the benchmarking right? The benchmarking marketing is just things that people do to try and get your assets today, but what is that going to do for your financial future and security? Are you following what everybody else is doing? And if so, well, we have examples. I mean, the, the past has revealed these things where we can go through 10 to 20 years and longer periods of no equity premium in certain markets and in certain asset classes. And then if you add real returns, boy oh boy, that which is what everybody consumes. I think everybody's learning what real returns are now as we experience both inflation and the devastation across bond portfolios. And so if you think about it through sort of the lens of Mandelbrot and Bernstein, what you find is, and Tetlock, what you find is, well, okay, your priors have to be updated. So dynamic asset allocation becomes very important. Stress testing and scenario analysis become very important. And trying to figure out ways you can stress test models with data that doesn't exist in some way is another thing. Making sure you're absolutely amplifying and maximizing the opportunity of diversification in the portfolio, which mean, always means you're having to say sorry, right? And then adding things like tail risk hedging which can provide liquidity during very trying times in order to add liquidity to a portfolio at opportune times, always be fully invested and buy when there's are blood in the streets. That's a contradiction. When we have a contradiction, we have to check our premise. One of them is false. And so you have to think about that. Then comes the behavioral side, of all of this sort of thing. How am I going to stick to this? How am I going to handle the tracking error and the real pain that comes behaviorally from my friends doing 15 while I did three? And keeping in mind when benchmarking is employed, if you have the S&P and the s and is down 28 and your manager's down 25, that's 3% outperformance for which he will or she will be bonused. You will have a substantial reduction in your standard of living. And we'll have to make adjustments to whether you're going to be driving car X or car Y and playing at golf course public or golf course private. And these are really difficult things. The lifestyle is sticky. If you're at the private course and you go play a public one, I mean, if you're a golfer, you know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. We broke down. And when we started doing some international travel a few years before the COVID, when my son was old enough, we started flying first class. There's no going back. I mean, there just isn't. Yeah. I know these are high quality problems, but no, I get it.
2: And definitely don't fly private ever.
1: (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) The voice of experience. So, Let me ask you this, because I've got a number of things I wanted to get to. You talked about dynamic asset allocation. Why don't, just for the benefit of people who are listening who maybe these terms aren't as familiar, compare strategic asset allocation, tactical, and then kind of where this fits in. And that might kind of lead us into specifically what you guys are doing at Resolve. and. Right. So strategic
2: asset allocation is saying, okay, I'm going to take long-term assumptions and I'm going to make allocations to the portfolio strategically and rebalance back to them very long-term.
1: Long-term assumptions based on? History, generally. Okay. Right? And I'm sorry I got it interrupt because this is important. 40 years our history of we have similar time in this business has been a lowering interest rate environment.
2: Right. Since 1981 yeah. to we have had one predominant tailwind which has allowed bonds to act as both a very good return producer as well as a wonderfully negatively correlated asset to stocks. So you're thinking about it strategically you're thinking, "Oh, okay, I'm going to have this very long-term record." Now, remember, averages They're kind of like having your head in the oven and your feet in the freezer. On average, you're comfortable, but in reality, you're not comfortable. You're going to have periods where the the S&P will go up 50% and you'll have times when it goes down 50%. When a portfolio is in decumulation, which many portfolios are today because baby boomers are retiring and they're starting to use their assets this complicates things further. It's the opposite of dollar cost averaging. When you're saving, you love dollar cost averaging. Bring me the volatility and let me just put that money in every period. While you're decumulating, it works in exactly the opposite direction. These are the volatility gremlins we also refer to in the book. So having a portfolio that produces 6% out of all of 20 will give you much less in the way of income than having a return of 6% with a ball of 6%. So tactic, or, uh, strategically, you're making this allocation, long-term assumptions, but your head is in the oven and your feet are in the freezer. So it's not that comfortable. Then you get to the idea of, well, let's have some tactical tilts. So this is, again, over longer periods, you're going to say, well, I'm looking at the CAPE ratio. Equities are expensive. I'm looking at real rates of returns of bonds. And I think I should move, instead of being 60-40, I'm going to be sort of 50-50 or 55-45. And I've tactically made that move and I layer it on top of my strategic allocation and I've got it in writing and the things that I'm doing and why I'm doing them. All right. And then you get into the dynamic asset allocation, which is taking a much more active approach, updating your priors much more regularly and adapting to the changing market environment. So rather than letting the inmates run the asylum, i.e. holding some steady state of asset allocation, regardless of what the inmates are doing and how they're rioting, versus thinking about this dynamically and actually watching what the inmates are doing. And when some of them are getting too crazy, you're actually taking those estimates of those, whether they're volatility, correlation, or returns, and you're adjusting those estimates and then adjusting the portfolio. So rather than letting the volatility run you over, what you're doing is simply adapting to the current set of circumstances and helping your portfolio have the appropriate amount of balance and diversity. A simple example here is the one we talk about in the book and you and I talked about previously was the idea that a portfolio that is 50% stocks and 50% bonds, on a capital-weighted basis, it's half and half. Seems relatively straightforward, but on a risk-weighted basis, stocks have a volatility of somewhere between 15 and 20. Bonds have a volatility of somewhere between, I don't know, four and eight. So the portfolio is dominated by what happens in the equity sleeve. Now, it further gets dominated if the correlations are above zero versus below zero. So as you reflected since 19, early 80s, we've been falling interest rates and very non-correlated bonds. So the complement of bonds to stocks has been quite good. Having said that, that's the non-normal state. The normal state is that often, they are correlated, especially when you encounter inflationary times. So this is a regime shift. So now we have this highly volatile asset dominating the portfolio, which is stocks, and now you have bonds correlated to it. So from a risk perspective, if we put on our x-ray goggles and x-ray this 50-50 portfolio, it's about 85 to 90% stock risk and about 5 to 10% bond risk. That's not an equal allocation of risk. And so looking at it with the risk goggles, you have a portfolio that's highly skewed to positive growth outcomes. If the economy is growing and inflation isn't too rampant, this portfolio is going to do wonderfully, which kind of is what happened from eighteen or 1982 to 2022. When that environment changes, things change.
1: You made a comment, Rodrigo, I think said something similar, which is normal. And this is a, another challenge you just identified because it is normal. I mean, I'm 60 in a month. So for my entirety of my career, what you're describing, I mean, I remember, I think we were even joking about it on the phone about sitting in the back of the car when our parents were in line. We were an even day. I remember that. They get the gas in the mid-70s. But this is an interesting point is that this 40-year window we're talking about isn't normal. An inflationary environment is really the norm. And I think that's a big eye-opener for a lot of people. You know what I mean? I mean, it just, it's just very easy to say, but to try to get people to see it and then adjust accordingly, it's very difficult. I mean, they're the turkey, unfortunately.
2: They've been treated so well for so long by something that they've loved so much. And this is the behavioral challenge and where you have cause for a need for being irreverent and railing against the machine as it continues to pick the sort of skews towards the old world portfolio. And by the way we're not trying to predict. We're trying to just say from a first principles perspective, how might we handle this? Let's not make the assumption that US equities go up as much as they have over the last 20 years. Let's not make the assumption that the US balance portfolio rolling sharp of close to one over the last 15 years prior to 2022 is the norm. Let's kind of think through this thinking back to, well, how do asset classes perform under different regimes? How might they perform? And from first principles, how might we build a portfolio? And let's try to avoid the media. Like my history is I grew up on a farm. My dad encouraged me to invest. And so working on the farm, I had extra money. You know, I was like 10 to 12 years old. You walked into a broker's place, you plopped down some money and they gave you some shares. There wasn't a street name. You took your shares home with you. You watched them in the newspaper. I had my GM shares and I had my bright shares. These were companies that were well represented in the Niagara regions. I was using the Peter Lynch formula. Hey, buy what you know. I mean, massive LOL to that. Where did you grow up? Where was what you knew? Again, the financial pornography out there is relentless. So, highly dependent on where you grew up and what your local experiences were, would dictate what your portfolio performance was in the Peter Lynch context. But, you know, I bought some GM, I bought some Brights, gave me an interest, I got dividend checks, but they didn't do particularly well, they didn't do particularly poorly. But in 1981, I had the opportunity to buy the Series 36 of the Canada Savings Bonds, 19.5% interest right? That was a lovely purchase. I also happened to purchase some silver, which I still own. The stocks I've sold, got married, needed some money. You know, the Canada Savings Bond finally came due and I was in university. Well, that got burned up in university shenanigans, but I still have the silver and that's at a $42 cost base. (laughs) So it's been a few years and I've been lugging it around everywhere and it's still not making me any money. So there's a lot to deal with as one navigates the universe of investing and navigates their own experiences, and you don't know. So, if you don't know, again, I'll go back to those things we talked about. Make sure you diversify.
1: Okay, so I have a question, but I'm listening to you and I'm just thinking because I think of the general, and I'm on a bit of an island. I mean, you start, as I'm sure you guys are, you start going down this path that's the less traveled or even maybe not even traveled, you isolate yourself. And there's certainly risk when you start talking to clients. I mean, I'm to the point now where safety isn't defined by government bonds or FDIC insurance. You know, I mean, we're looking at this. It's almost completely just scrapping all these old principles to try to be as open to new ideas as possible. But to sit in these points are important because it all comes down to the success of the client's experience. And that's what I loved about the intro of the book, because it all brings it back to how's this going to affect the client? And there's an element of integrity in all this, I think, because to sit and just throw money into old models, which I can tell you on our platform, most of the managers, you got all these different money managers, but the reality of it is it's all the same thing. Stocks, bonds, and cash, top down, bottom up, whatever. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you're still holding the same exact things. It doesn't change anything. It's a different mix, whatever. Whatever. So there's an integrity issue here for sure, which is what I really appreciate about people like you, because you've shunned the easy money, I suppose, in this industry to really do what's right. But who as an advisor wants to own the risk of not exploring other options? I mean, that almost to me seems irresponsible to just assume. And so I guess what I'm steering is I'd like to talk because you said you alluded to that's my words. But you've talked about the role of the volatility, because to me, I heard something a number of years ago. I don't remember the firm, but it's always kind of stuck with me. It's not necessarily how much you make on the upside. It's what you don't lose on the downside. And I think that sort of speaks to a theme I pulled out of your book. But yeah, maybe let's talk about volatility and correlation as well, because they're interconnected and they certainly have an important role here.
2: Absolutely. I think we did touch on volatility and how those gremlins of volatility affect the ability for a portfolio to reliably create income.
1: Okay, so let me ask you this then. Is that controlled certainly by the way you allocate assets, but would you also say too it is influenced by the types of investment vehicles you use for clients as well because they do tend certain things tend to do different things and have protections built in. I mean, is that all a component of that, would you say? Yeah,
2: I mean, let's use an example. So we have the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund that we manage in the US and this is a mutual fund and it targets 12% volatility. So By a combination of mathematical computation, considering what expected returns are in various asset classes, what the volatilities are expected to be and what the correlations are, and with the thoughtful use of leverage, you can reach that 12% volatility, which is sort of the volatility of a balanced fund, but you can reach that volatility, that target without those outlier events that occur in just say like equities alone. Remember that if we think about the world, the dynamics of the interaction between economic growth and inflation, that creates four regimes, right? And those regimes are one of, hey, I have growing inflation and I've got global growth. So inflation is not growing so much that it's choking off the global growth. Or I have global growth and I have disinflation. Ooh, great. Or I have no growth and inflation. That's the stagflation of the 70s. Or I have no inflation. I have deflation and I have no growth. That is a deflationary period like 2008 and the Great Depression. So in those four quadrants, there are asset classes that have structural relationships that perform well or don't perform well in those four buckets. So in a period where you have inflation, but also global growth, think 03 to 08. Places like Canada and Australia and South Africa do really well. Commodities do really well. Think about a period of time where you have disinflation and global growth. Sort of the last 10 years. Well, commodities do horribly. These emerging markets, they do horribly. What does well? U.S. markets. This is not a surprise that the U.S. balance portfolio to the end of 2021 did so well. Structurally, it's designed to if you're in that regime. Now, let's think about when we have falling inflation or deflation and no growth. That's 08. Well, what did well? Return of principle, not return on principle, gold and long-term bonds. Let's think about that stagflationary period of the 70s. What did well? Commodities and commodity producing nations and emerging market bonds because they were able to adapt to the inflation because they benefit from it in the commodity prices. So now you have these four regimes and these four sets of asset classes that will adapt differently. So the first thing is to be a little bit parsimonious and say, well, why don't we equally risk these four quadrants? Let the world fight over what they're buying and selling today. Let's target a risk level of 12%, and let's see how we do. Turns out you do pretty well, and that's that risk pair to your all-weather portfolio that Ray Dalio has popularized. So that's, you know, you get a dollar of that, in the adaptive allocation framework. And that's just to say, hey, let's harness all of the risk premiums out there, but let's balance them in a way that maximizes the risk reward opportunity. The next thing is, let's introduce some dynamic adjustments to this. Let's look at shorter term estimates on volatility and correlation and returns and add an active overlay. So when certain asset classes have significantly high volatility, which often correlates with their going down a lot, that those assets are reduced in exposure. And let's make sure that when we have solid trending assets that have low volatility, that those are increased in exposure. So then you have this dynamic active asset allocation overlay. And lastly, we add the tail protection. So we have a small tail protection piece of this portfolio because in the event that we have this cataclysmic moment, wouldn't it be lovely to have a cash injection? Well, it sure would. And how can you think about having a cash injection in a portfolio if you've got all these other things going on? Well, your basic portfolio is probably going to do okay, but not great. It's going to mitigate some losses, but you're still not going to be up. Your dynamic portfolio hopefully will take advantage of trend and carry and mean reversion and those types of things. So hopefully it'll provide some returns, but your tail hedge portfolio could add 10 or 15% of new capital to the portfolio to invest across the portfolio while some of the portfolio is in significant drawdown thereby helping add to assets that are opportune in a long term time frame so if you think through this logically this is what we've done with the adaptive asset allocation framework with the rational resolve fund and just thinking through each step and thinking about how the correlations and the volatilities and the return assumptions relate to one another and building a portfolio that can adapt quickly. So you get sort of a dollar of that exposure, dollar of your sort of more passive, better built, more diversified portfolio. And summing it all up, you've got stocks in there for, hey, when growth is great and things are positive. You got bonds in there for the growth shocks. And then you've got commodities in there for the inflationary shocks, plus the tail hedge protection for when really the, I'll say the shit hits the fan, if you will.
1: <laughs> Congratulations. The only two people that have said the S word on the show have been my pastor friends. (laughs) So you're in good company, brother. That tailwind is interesting because having that built into a portfolio and an allocation strategy, I just, the first thought that came to my head is you're automatically doing what clients and even advisors probably, and I'll speak for myself, you know, I mean, I'm a little longer in the tooth now after 0809. but to make that recommendation and for a client to follow through with it can be very difficult. So the wisdom of having that already built in, I mean, it's the decisions being made without the decision having to be made. Right, so right. To speak.
2: We've cloaked it. We've cloaked it. Right. right. There's a form of cloaking that goes on that reduces the line item risk. So as an advisor, I started in wealth. I'm very familiar with how individuals react to different line items in the portfolio. I'm very familiar that they do not want to rebalance. There's a huge rebalancing premium available by selling a little bit of what's going up and buying a little bit of what's going down. That's not what people like doing. They don't like to do that. They like to fire the people in their portfolio that aren't keeping up and that aren't what their friends have. And it ends up focusing them in a herd-like mentality. These are structurally built in. These are kind of, they're not bugs, they're features of how the investment universe, how the investment industry works and how bench marketing works. And so it's up to the end client to be thoughtful about it. Right now making the news rounds is Warren Buffett's massive cash reserve, right? How many people have a massive cash reserve now and are willing to tolerate that kind of scenario? How many people are willing to have trend following managers in their portfolio given the last 10 years of performance? But after oh, last 10 years week. of yeah, <laughs> last week. yeah, that too. But yeah, precisely, right? So yeah. so these things are hard. So we try to allow them to be cloaked. Even an exposure to gold for an example which is very contentious for a Canadian investor, much more a priority for a South American investor or European investor based on their personal experiences. So they don't mind having a light item of gold, but in the US, I don't think that that's a very popular thing, but it will be popular, but only after it has the returns. So we consider gold and silver and platinum and palladium in the portfolio, and that's kind of cloaked in there. It's already in there. It's baked in. The volatility correlation and return assumptions are built into the allocation process so that you do have those when they're appropriate and hoping that the tracking error isn't too much for the end advisor slash client to deal with. And this is where it takes an investment professional, a true fiduciary who can sit with the client and understand what is their actual tracking error? What is it that's gonna make them quit? You never quit when it's up a lot. You only quit when it's down a lot. And when you quit when it's down a lot, you've absorbed all the risk And have no opportunity to receive the returns that are commensurate with the returns of the strategy. You crystallize the losses with no chance for the commensurate return. And doing that over and over again is very deleterious to long term returns. So the advisor in this case has to be very diligent in understanding the end user's tracking error bias. And the tracking error bias is going to be very different in Texas than it is in San Francisco, than it is in New York then it is in Toronto, then it is in Calgary, then it is in Lima, Peru. These are going to be very different tracking errors that have to be attenuated. So there's definitely a position there. So this is where we've developed the whole return stacking suite of strategies, where we've paired both bonds and stocks with trend following using managed futures, again, to cloak a little bit of that diversification, but also provide it on top of those very critical long-term assets that are dominating portfolios. So this allows the advisor to sneak a little bit of medicine in and by return stacking, you get a dollar of the beta exposure. So return stacked stocks and trend has a dollar of S&P exposure. And on top of that is a dollar of managed futures trend following. You can incorporate it into your portfolio Without having to give up those core exposures that people know, love, and trust for better or for worse. So, we're always trying to think through the ways in which we can incorporate these things. The adaptive asset allocation framework doesn't do the individual betas, it has a better balanced portfolio at the core, making sure that stocks, bonds, and commodities are incorporated along with the active management stacked on top and the tail risk. But all of these portfolios are designed to be put in and be complements to what the advisor's using or on behalf of the investment owner to help make sure that the portfolio is robust during periods that are maybe not like the periods that we've had over the last 20
1: years. That's great. And I will tell you this, I don't know if you've seen this because I do have a question. I'm not sure how well you're going to be able to answer it, but I'm willing to or whatever. Of course. uh, Okay. But we are seeing, you know, again, in our small little $200 Two hundred million dollar firm. We are meeting clients who are seeing because you brought up a point about sneaking in the medicine, and it can be very difficult trying to protect clients against risks that not only they don't see, but I don't know that they're really necessarily willing to see. Because these changes you're talking about, obviously tentacles that get into geopolitics and reshifting alliances and all this stuff, which it just it can be too much. But we are seeing people who are embracing this, exactly what you've been talking about, because they see the need. And it's actually become a bit of a niche for us because of the fact that we're not speaking the the standard language, which has been, wasn't intentional. It just was, again, kind of more of just trying to do what's right for people. But here's a question, because I know you interact with money management people all over the world. I mean, how well are you guys received? Can I ask
2: you that? Oh, still very low rates of adoption. All right. So again, you have a market and this is both institutionally and on the retail side. So call it, I think we're about 700 million in AUM. But if you go and look just at, let's look at as a segment of the market, those managers who are in the managed futures space, 12, 15 years ago, $350 billion in that space. So these are just one example of highly adaptive strategies that will use anything from trend or carry and so on. They use different strategies, but they're adaptive. And they're looking to do something different than buy and hold passive sort of 60 40. A year ago, that size of that industry was still $350 billion. And the size of global assets has probably doubled over the last 12 to 15 years. So the interest in the field has probably halved. And if you look at the number of funds that they've been reduced, so the ones that are around that are surviving are doing something right or they're making compromises, right? They're, I think we're trying to do the least amount of compromise making in order to make sure these tools are useful and complementary to advisors. So if we take a look at risk parity, Ray Dalio's sort of pervasive thought process, Invesco has a balanced risk portfolio. And in that balanced risk portfolio, only 15% is dedicated to commodities. The uh, mercers of the world will suggest that to a board if the board is sensitive to tracking error. So it's balanced risk, but it's got a built-in bias to traditional assets. And so managers are making compromises in order to fit the needs of the constituent investors which is fine a little bit goes a long way right so thinking this through coming back to my point with the advisor it's yeah be forward thinking the whole point of return stacking and adaptive asset allocation is a yes and it's not saying hey let's take 20 percent out of the stock bond betas that you know love and trust no no let's have those And on top of those, we'll stack the diversifiers, thereby giving you the best of both worlds. You can have your cake and eat it too. Why do we wanna make a burger and say, well, you can have lettuce, but you can't have pickles. Let's stack that burger up, make it the most delicious burger possible and make that burger customized to you.
1: Really the key point where I'm at, and my partner Amy is, is that at this point, it's really including, I mean, literally as much as you can quality, but just you have to be willing to add in a lot of these non-traditional approaches, whatever the label is at this point in time. I just don't see how you can't. So let me ask you this kind of, as we're winding this up, if you're retiring, you're speaking to a retiree right now, what are the biggest, maybe two or three, four points you might just say that people should be concerned with? heading into, if you're 65 now, let's just say the next 15 to 20 years? Is that a fair question?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we document a little bit of this in the book too. Just remember that the best scenario for retiring would be to have been working and contributing massively to your portfolio of stocks and bonds. Let's say you've got a 25-year work period. So from 1965 to 1982, you were just piling money in. And then in 1982, you retired. Well, stocks and bonds went on a 40-year run you had more money than you knew what to do with at the end of that. Conversely, what if you were working and saving the 25 years previous to 1965? So it was all an upmarket. It all got more and more expensive. And then you retired in that 65 to 68 period and then went through the 70s, the rising interest rates into 1982. All things being equal, taking income, you run out of money about halfway through. That is just luck. You weren't any smarter of a doctor, lawyer, entrepreneur, or any less smart. You just were unlucky. So what you want to be highly sensitive to if you're retiring today is there's a very high risk zone two to three years before retirement and two to three years after retirement. And this is mathematically certain. We've covered this on our blog. There's lots of research there, and I think it's covered in the book as well to a very high risk zone a few years before and a few years right after you retire. If you sustain large losses in that period, you will have a substantially lower quality of life from a funding perspective. And thus it requires a great deal of care in the moments right before and right after retirement, making sure you're stewarding your wealth in a responsible risk managed way. Because large losses in that period, have permanent structural impediments to your lifestyle. We talked about the public golf course versus private golf course. We talked about flying coach versus flying first class versus having to drive to see whatever you're going to see, right? So this is a very real and present danger to people who are retiring in this moment. I would ask them to make sure they're very thoughtful about that. And make sure they're not overconfident or over risked or overexposed, especially in the period right before. So if anyone's coming up to retirement in the next two to three years, or they have retired or that zone of just starting to retire, man, you have a 25 or 30% reduction in your investable assets. That's not recoverable. You cannot recover from that.
1: I tell you what, I really appreciate the time. And as I mentioned, I think earlier, we're pretty much on an island, as I said. And so When you speak to that, I really appreciate it because you're articulating thoughts and approaches we've had. We've been doing with clients that same thing. It's like the runways in sight, you're landing the plane, tighten things up, get rid of all your garbage. And then the same thing, you know, as you said, when you head into it. But, you know, obviously you guys are taking it to a much more technical level with the way you manage money. I guess I want to say, Mike, I appreciate the time today and I really appreciate the fact there's people like you in this industry because $700 million mutual fund, I mean, straight up, it's a small fund in the big scheme of the, but. That's what I appreciate about guys like you is is there's a higher calling here. There's a greater purpose. It's not just simply about collecting fees. It's about actually helping people and doing it in a way where you know you're going to get shunned by all the masses. I mean, to me, that's the attraction. So the herd goes one way. I've always just in life in all aspects, you go the other way and it seemed to do well in the end. So irreverence. Yeah. In reverence, man. That's it. We started with that. We ended with that. Listen, I really appreciate you. Say hi to your partners and I'm just today for joining me on Upthinking Finance.
2: Yeah. and, And thank you so much. And thank you for spreading the word on these various topics. They're incredibly important. And these are meaningfully important conversations that a lot of investors and asset owners, they just don't know. They are ignorant. They don't know Thanksgiving's coming. They're not aware of that. And thus communicating that to them and communicating solutions to them that can help them navigate is going to be, I think, very important over the coming decades. And it's going to be something that's not seen initially. And we operate right now in sort of maybe the nooks and crannies, if you will, of being different. But one day this will be the common way and maybe we'll have to do something different then again. Who knows? But at the moment, maximizing diversification, making sure there's balance amongst the portfolios and the various strategies and betas that you're harnessing, making sure you're managing risk are going to be critically important, I think, over the next decade. And those investors who do that, I think will bear the fruits. And those who don't, well, hopefully we'll get them as clients along the way too.
1: Thanks, Mike. Appreciate your time. A
0: pleasure. Alison Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.